Hello and welcome to the Woman by Definition podcast. This episode I interview Abigail Schreier. She's the author of the must-read book Irreversible Damage, the transgender craze seducing our daughters. Unsuspecting parents are awakening to find their daughters enthralled to hip trans YouTube stars and gender-affirming educators and therapists who push life-changing interventions on young girls including medically unnecessary double mastectomies and puberty blockers that cause permanent infertility. Her book is out in the USA already and it comes out in the UK on the 23rd of July. Uh, Abigail is a contributor to the Wall Street Journal. She holds an AB from Columbia College where she received the Uretta J. Kellett Fellowship, a Bachelor's of Philosophy from the University of Oxford and a JD from Yale Law School. I must say, her book looks fantastic. It's very in-depth in its research and really personable. Uh, I got the feeling from this chat that Abigail cares deeply about what's happening to our girls across the West, and I think you should be too. Please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Welcome to the Woman by Definition podcast, Abigail. Thanks so much for having me on. You're you're welcome. I'm absolutely ecstatic, to be fair. Um, So unfortunately, you're you're controversial. It's not controversial at all for us. Uh, But your supposed controversial book, um, I don't know, with all that truth stuff, is not out in the UK for another couple of weeks, although I suspect it's it's on pre-order. For so many people, uh, yes, I, I, you know, you have the same problem we do. Um, you, you know that that all of a sudden, after a hundred-year diagnostic history of gender dysphoria, severe discomfort in one's biological sex, for the first time in history, out of nowhere, we have, you know, teenage girls being the predominant demographic. Um, teenage girls rushing to hormones and surgeries, convinced that they're not really girls; they're actually boys. Um, so I, I, there's yeah. been there's been a lot of interest in the book from the UK, um, and and I agree with you. It shouldn't be controversial. You know, this is a mental health and problem facing teen girls. They're in crisis, and discussing it and exploring why how we got here and what are the risks of medical transition really really shouldn't be controversial. So what motive? I mean, clearly, I, I think we both are aware of of what's happening. But what specifically? motivated you to write this at this time? So I'm a journalist um, and I wasn't, I wasn't interested at all in this issue per se. And then a reader wrote to me and I tried to pass her on to someone else. And she told me this, her story. Her daughter had gotten caught up in this craze. Her daughter who had never had gender dysphoria had you know, always had social difficulties, a precocious girl. And she went off to college and decided with a group of her girlfriends that they were all transgender and she wanted hormones and eventually went on them and whatnot. And the mother wrote to me and said, there are parents all over the country going through this. You know, No one will take this up. I'm writing to every journalist I can. And I tried to pass her on to an investigative journalist I thought be, might be more interested in it because I typically wrote opinion journalism. And I found that she was right. Journalists did not want to take on this issue. And I also realized the more I investigated, 
that this was the issue a journalist had to take on because no one else could, because doctors were afraid they would lose their jobs. Parents wouldn't speak under their own names because they were afraid if they expressed any concern about this or skepticism that this was good for their daughters, they would uh, lose their daughters entirely or that their daughters would rebel and self-harm. So if it wasn't for a journalist willing to write about it, who was, gonna, who was going to you know, talk about this issue? It's really, it's, I think the silencing, the work on the silencing has been happening for a really long time, way before many of us knew what was going on at all. Uh, have you talked to any of your colleagues? I mean, you don't have, clearly don't name them, but if you talk to any of your colleagues who won't touch it, have they explained why? Oh, that's interesting. So other journalists, yeah, I, you know, I don't fault anyone. I would say this, you know, most journalists who won't touch this issue will say things to me like, listen, I'm already getting so much grief for the other controversial issue I'm, I'm writing about right now. That's really my beat. If I retweet you or if I talk about you, I just can't take any more grief. Um, and I think that's a really fair response. Um, because we've opened ourselves up through social media, through, so, through these mobs of public shaming. And it's really hard. I mean, I don't, you know, I, I certainly don't minimize that, that what you face it from, you know, the opprobrium from friends, colleagues, your boss. I mean, people get fired because of a post online today. It's, it's not easy for people to express anything that's been deemed off limits. Yeah. Who knew Twitter was going to be quite the monster that it turned out to be? Yeah, it, it really is. And, you know, the shame of all this, of course, is because young girls aren't getting good medical care. That, that is a really humdrum point to make. It's not, it's not, it's a major problem, but it's not terribly interesting in and of itself, except that no one wants to talk about it. And mm. everyone and all these elements of our society seem to be making it worse. Yeah, well, yes. Um, I came to America last year um, and I went to Washington and I met some of the mothers. And I can honestly, I can barely, I've got four children. I can barely articulate how it felt to be in that room without, and I don't cry at much, <laughs> but it makes, me, it makes me want to cry every time I can, I can see those mothers' faces. And some of them reported, um, and they're 18-year-olds who've had double mastectomies, who've had radical hysterectomies, and how those girls, the week before they said they were trans, they just didn't think they had no gender dysphoria, they didn't know they were trans. So is it widespread? Is it more in sort of certain pockets or communities in the United States? I think it is. I mean, I don't know, I haven't done, you know, we haven't seen sort of demographic surveys. We're just sort of figuring this out, I think. Um, you know, Lisa Lippman did, did the initial research, um, but, but I, I, you know, from my own experience, and I've talked to dozens and dozens and dozens of families at this point, um, it does seem to be in progressive communities, more politically progressive communities, and it, it hits them the hardest, partly because their schools tend to be more aggressive on the gender ideology, so they're getting pushed you know, culturally in the schools, but there's something else too. And, and, and I agree with you. I talk to parents every day. I mean, parents reach out every day 
and to tell me their, their story. And I think one of the cruel things about why this hit progressive families so hard is because they were genuinely so open-minded. So when their daughters came to them and said, mom, I'm, you know, I'm 13, but I'm pretty sure I'm a lesbian. The mothers completely embraced them and they were completely open to whatever, what, and whatever the daughter said about herself. And, and so then the daughter would sometimes say, well, actually I'm a boy. And initially very often the mothers were sort of, they, they didn't agree, but they were willing to go along with it. They just wanted to be loving and supportive. And unfortunately, in many instances, this incredible open-mindedness and loving support really got turned against them because yeah. it was because they sometimes weren't willing to put their foot down and say, okay, you're not starting testosterone. I'm sorry. Um, in some cases they weren't, they were, or, or binders. Very often I talk to parents and they'll say to me, I just can't take her binder away. I, you know, our relationship's been so lovely. I, I don't want to sacrifice it. And, and sometimes I'll say to them, would you give her cigarettes? Because we know binders are really dangerous. You know, they deform breast tissue. They, they, they can cause rib cracking, shortness of breath. They're, they're, they're quite dangerous for a 14-year-old or, you know, a 16-year-old living in your house to be going around with. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think, and I don't want to criticize these parents at all because I think there's an, there's an epidemic of permissive parenting that doesn't really feel too much like parenting all that much where we just allow, you know, we're, we're adults, we have children, and we have a duty to try and make them the best adults they can possibly be by parenting them when they're children. Because no matter what my kids say, I do know best. <laughs> I do know better than them. And so I have, I have quite an old school relationship with my parents, with my kids, and my parents actually still, where there is, there is a chain of command. And um, my kids aren't in control of their lives. They can do that when they leave. And, and I think that's wonderful. I mean, you know, I, I have more of, I, I, I try to have more of that relationship with my kids, but these parents are, let me just say, they're so wonderful. I think it's such a noble impulse and such a good one that they want to stay so close to their children and their daughters, especially. And it's so sad to watch it used against them because the girl, sometimes what she's just trying to do is stage a rebellion. And mm. because the mother so, so much wants to stay, be with her in everything. She wants to get her ears pierced with her daughter. She wants to go to the rock concerts with her. She wants to, because the mother goes along with so much of this, at some point, the daughter is escalating because all she's looking for really is space. She's looking for a line in the sand where she says, no, mm. I'm not just an extension of you, mom. I'm my own person. And the one thing that's allowing some of these girls to get that is to say, I'm not even a girl. I'm a boy now. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting that maybe they're looking for the boundary. They're looking for the place at which somebody says, no. And I, again, I don't fault those parents because I do think it's just born out of an absolute love for their kids. But, um, you know, it, parenting isn't always about doing what your kids want. It's, it's sometimes doing the hard stuff. And, and, and the parents are genuinely scared. I mean, they'll say to me like, you know, they'll say to me, well, I, if this is what she is, if she's trans, you know, I, I, I'm not a transphobe. I don't want to be a transphobe. And it's very clear that their sort of political, you know, 
leanings are stopping them from sometimes doing what's right for their daughter. So they don't believe their daughter is really transgender, but they've been so, they so strongly politically believe that you have to support and you should support all members of LGBTQ that sometimes even when their political views come into conflict with, wait a second, you know, I may support, you know, all the rights for all kinds of people broadly, but my daughter doesn't seem to be, she seems to be engaging in self-harm that has nothing to do with yeah. genuine gender dysphoria. They feel like they can't say that. Do you think then there's a place, because obviously it's the ultimate in cognitive dissonance, do you think there's a place where they know, where they can let themselves say it, that they, they know that their daughter is, is, a, is a girl and that this is very harmful and... Do you think they can so, say it out loud in their own homes? I actually just think many of them cannot. Um, from my experience, they tend to say it to their husbands or they say it, um, you know, I, I, some of the couples I interviewed were lesbians, so they say it to their wives or, um, or they say it in their support groups. But they're really, people are very, you know, we're walking around, at least in America, and, I, and, I, and I'm sure the same is true in Britain, we're now where everyone is sort of Walter Cronkite, meaning you know everyone's a news broadcaster. So even things you say in your, the privacy of your home or in your neighborhood can get broadcast by anyone on the internet. Mm. So some of the things you want to say to your daughter aren't necessarily politically correct because they aren't political statements they're just about your daughter and what she sh what she should be doing in your home it's not a political mm. statement but we've sort of allowed everything to become a political statement because we we now have these iphones in which anyone can broadcast something you've said or done to millions of people yeah and also that daughter can go to school and she can tell her educators she can tell a counselor she can tell her doctor that she's got these transphobic, terrible parents that won't go along with it. And she's taken seriously. And we've, uh, in the United Kingdom, and I'm sure it's the same in both Canada and the US, we've taken some parental power away from parents. Uh, with this, we've, this is a shining example, but we've, we've taken it away. Absolutely. I've never seen parents so beaten down and, and undermined. And these parents are incredible people. They are so wonderful. They are so attentive. They are so determined to help their daughters in whatever way they can. And they send them to schools in good faith that mm -hmm. literally will, will encourage the daughter to decide she's a different gender, will fill out a form with her name, her new name and pronouns, will use that name with her and will hide this from the parents. This happens all across the United States now. Um, it is, it really is, it, it's, it, it's such a cruel um, misuse of the school relationship as sort of turning, you know, helping to turn the kids against their parents. And, and it's, it's way too common. Well, it's what all good totalitarian regimes have done. They turn the kids away for, you know, to the sort of inform on their parents. It, it couldn't be more fascistic really in its nature. That's exactly right. That, that is what it is. It's so weird. And it, I mean, it, there's the old adage, isn't there? Fascism doesn't come as a monster. It kind of comes as your friend. That's so interesting. Yes, that, that is, I mean, you know, these, these, um, these laws in the United States, they came in through anti, in the school systems, they're called anti-bullying laws. They're anti-bullying, sorry, policy. So um, in California, you're not even allowed to opt out of gender identity 
you know, instruction because it's not part of the sexual education instruction, which parents are allowed to opt their children yeah. out of. It's part of anti-bullying. So the pretext is that, oh, in order to stop bullying of kids, we have to, in, we have to teach them all about all the genders they might be. Well, of course, that's, that's not honest, right? You can, you can absolutely enforce and you should enforce strict anti-bullying policies without indoctrinating an entire student body in gender confusion. Yeah. So where does that come from? So over here, we have trans lobby groups that um, sort of masquerade as advocacy groups, but they're really their political lobby groups. And they've managed to infiltrate our schools. Is, is that what's happened in the US? Absolutely. Absolutely. Our, our activists, when I learned, when I, I really, I focused on California, it's, it, it's where I live. I mean, that's, that's a lot of the reason, but also because it's the most progressive and, and thorough um, gender ideology instruction um, in the United States. And it's a model for other states. And I found that there was really no barrier between the ad, the activists and the teachers in California. So the, the activists were coming in, they were supplying the curricula that the schools were using to teach gender ideology. They were training the teachers. And in some cases they were even co coaching after school clubs. So there was no, no division between, in California, between you know, teachers and activists. Yeah, and the language around gender identity. So if you ever talk, if I ever talk to a trans activist, which I, I rarely do anymore because I've been banned from nearly all social media platforms. So it's quite difficult to have access. But if I do, that they talk about um, you know, they, they try and make it uh an embarrassing thing. So they'll say, Oh, you're you're just focusing on genitals, you just want to check genitals, you just and the whole language about gender really when you look at uh, sex reassignment surgery it is pretty much about the 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 sort of sex characteristics of our bodies which do happen to be uh, genitals um, and so even the language of, a, of an adult talking to a child about gender identity is going to skirt around things that we wouldn't have talked about five to ten years ago Yes, I think you're right. They do try to embarrass. I hadn't thought about it that way, but that's exactly right. I mean, you think um, they try to make, you know, sex just about genitals, but, but of course it's not, right? I mean, you know, J.K. Rowling put this really beautifully in her, in her, um, in the piece she wrote that got her into so much trouble. Uh, but, um, you know, there's an inter interiority to a woman's experience, the experience of being in this body. And, and to, uh, you know, our, our set of preferences and, and, and feelings and take on things that, you know, may be rooted in biology to some extent, but it's not just the biology. But I do think they try to shame you for ever engaging. Many of the activists try to shame you by using crude language that's going to make a lot of women uncomfortable. Yeah. But then, but that same crude language, I think, is, is something they're more than happy to talk about with each other like i follow a couple of very young women who have transitioned uh, call themselves trans men and they talk very intimately and graphically about their own bodies and the changes in ways that i don't think people would have found uh, sort of access to that sort of level of detail if they weren't sort of in this trans movement so you, i don't think you would have had someone 19 years old talking about the specifics and the sizes and the changes and the um fluid 
or any of those things about her body. I just don't think you would have got it. That, that's right. In fact, even when I talk to transgender adults, they find the contemporary culture so graphic and so extreme and so public in ways that are very showy and exhibitionist that don't that really aren't what they grew up with, right? Transgender adults of prior eras or what used to be called transsexuals, they weren't doing this to show off or gain friends, right? No. They, they, mm. they had a rough time in the culture. And today, and it's not just trans, you know, it's it really, I don't think it's just trans identified teens. Teens are so focused today on, on social media and living for social media. So living for the, for the sake of their audiences, they don't have the same richness of experience because everything's for documentation and publication, you know, into, into the world. Yeah. And they don't get to make, I, I often think when I was younger, if I had a bad opinion or if I had a badly thought out opinion or didn't know about something, then you would sit and you talk to a friend and you'd say sort of, I think this guy's pink. And they'd say, why would you think that? It's clearly blue. Look, this is why it's blue because this, this, and this. And you go, oh, okay. And that would be the end of it. But now you don't get to make social errors. You don't get to make minor mistakes. You get to make permanently recorded catastrophic things that can shape your career even in your teens. I, I agree with that so much. And I think it is at the root of what's wrong with growing up today, because anybody who is honest looks back on the dumb things they once believed or said, the, the unkind words they once said to someone or whatever. And you just, that's growing up, right? Yeah. It's embarrassing. You look back on it and you think, gosh, I was, I was such an idiot to have said that or to have believed that or whatever. And, and that's, you're supposed to be allowed to be an idiot as a kid, right? Mm. I mean, that's sort of what it's about is figuring out what you actually do believe and what is right and, and how to behave and, and so forth. And, and today, because the consequences of a bad opinion or a bad belief are so dire, schools and activists and children are, are, are being taught, I mean, are, are teaching and being taught that the important thing is the conclusion. We all need to reach the same conclusion because that conclusion will keep you safe. So a lot of people will tell me about my book. They'll say, you know, I hear activists online, they want to disagree with the book so badly, but of course they don't want to buy it because even <laughs> owning it is so terrible, right? And of course yeah. I would welcome, you know, to hear what they disagreed with. And, you know, I've gotten so much feedback from transgender adults and Honestly, the ones who are willing to buy it, it's been very positive. But it's like they know the conclusion is bad. They know they hate it. They just won't read it. <laughs> well, I mean, it is, the title is Irreversible Damage, which it is irreversible damage. And uh, do you want to talk through some of your, some of your findings? So um, what don't American parents understand that what is the pathway really once you affirm that seven-year-old as a boy what what's going to happen so um the things there's a lot of things parents don't realize one is that girls are in genuine mental distress in 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 rate in rates we've never seen before we've never seen such rates of anxiety depression cutting self-harm in our teen age girls and even tweens so before they hit their teenage years so the, the distress is real, but unfortunately, um, 
you know, our science around this has become so politicized that we're not honest about things. And I, I interviewed um, Marcus Evis, Evans, who resigned from your Tavistock clinic, who was so wonderful. And he, I had a great interview with him. He's a, he's a wonderful, wonderful man. Mm. And he said to me, um, you know, they were the line about puberty blockers, everyone was saying is, oh, it's a neutral intervention. And he said, he said to me, effectively, are you kidding? A neutral intervention to send a child off to middle school or high school and, and keep them having never gone through puberty, having stunted them so they don't experience anything that their peers are experiencing, you know, physiologically, hormonally, and you consider that a neutral intervention? Um, psychologically, that's a profound intervention. And of course, that's right. The, the, the medicine has become so politicized that parents can't really rely on honesty, even from medical professions about medical transition. Yeah, that's, I mean, it is, it's very frightening. So um, do you know the rates? Because I know one of the, the difficulties with your American health system is that you don't really have centralized numbers. Do you, do you have any idea how many children are taking puberty blockers? Right. So I don't know how many people are taking puberty blockers. And, you know, I focus on the period a little bit after that. So I focus on the right. girls who get, you know, teenagers um, who, who have gone through puberty. They, they get this onset of what they claim to be dysphoria after puberty and they decide with their friends that they're trans. Um, the reason we don't have exact numbers on this is because, you know, in, because you said we're not centralized, but there's another thing too. In the United States, you don't need a diagnosis of gender dysphoria to get testosterone. You can go into a Planned Parenthood clinic and leave that day having self-diagnosed with gender dysphoria. So we don't have doctors who keeping track of these things. Um, and we don't have, as you say, a centralized medical system keeping track. What, what I can tell you is that in 2016, the, between 2016 and 2017, the number of biological females who underwent gendered surgery quadrupled. We're looking so at horrid. very high numbers. Yeah. So horrid. Um, so I've, I've uh, pushed the idea around that gender dysphoria is a label that we basically give um, the manifestation of trauma, whether it's all social contagion. I think that's probably, I don't think the social contagion, I don't think you pick up something like that from your friends or from society unless it's got to fill some sort of void. So did you, in your um, research uh, for the book, did you find any girls that were willing to take steps into sort of the whole testosterone and surgery that didn't have uh, trauma or internalized homophobia or something? Or do you think they were all, did they all come to the table with, with some sort of trauma or disorder? I think most of them, well, it's a complicated question. And I'll tell you why. I think I would say most of them had not had trauma in what sort of I would have considered trauma. Right. But, but the thing to know is that these girls are very psychologically fragile. This is the most sheltered generation we've ever raised. And it's the most, um, so many of them have been in therapy and they have high anxiety and they have depression. So things like the death of a grandparent, which can be hard on anyone, but we used to regard as sort of a normal part of life is now it may be a form of trauma for these girls. They're just not as psychologically strong. Um, 
So it's a little bit of a hard question to answer in that respect. So do you think that, so, uh, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm asking big questions, so I, I apologize, but no, no, no. do you think it's, so I think the external forces, for example, of pornography, the sexualization of girls, the absolute sort of overt sexism that I think we see in a way that maybe I'm a child of the 80s. So we fought gender stereotypes. It seems now everyone's quite happy just to have them and, and fit somewhere. So you've got the external forces there, but also the fragility comes from something else. Where does the fragility come from? I think a huge, I mean, look, the helicoptering, you know, of parents, and, and that's not parents' fault, let me say. The world has gotten less safe for girls in, in a variety of ways. Um, you know, you know, in my own city, Los Angeles, you know, I watch my kids, I give them much less freedom than I had. But then again, we have a lot more dangers. We have a big homeless population. We have, you know, that is very often mentally unstable. We have, you know, there are reasons for it. So I, I'm not criticizing parents, but there's helicoptering and whatnot. But more than that, social media is, is so poisonous for teenage girls. It puts girls in constant competition and constant um, evaluation of each, by their peers. It sets them yeah. up for that constantly. They never get to escape it. And then they go in, they have influencers. They have these, you know, social media gurus. They look at Kylie Jenner and they think, I'm never going to be as beautiful as she is. There's no way I can. And they never stop looking at her picture. They're looking at it all day long. It's so cruel. This mechanism mm. for comparing them. It's like some sort of debutante ball that never ends. Gosh, yes. Uh, um a long time ago, there was a Facebook app. I was about 43, so I'm 46 now. And there was, a, there was an app. You could take your picture. And then what you would do is you could thin your nose. You could take these jowls off. You could erase all the wrinkles. You could do whatever you wanted. And I discovered it. And for about three or four pictures, every now and again, I didn't do the face because I'm, I'm far too old um, to do those sort of, sorts of things. But I thinned my nose a few times. And then one day I looked in the mirror and I thought, my nose looked big. Now, I'd never thought anything about my nose ever in my life. I've always, I've got quite a flat face. So it never occurred to me that my nose was anything but just like a small little kind of inoffensive nose. But it, it didn't take long for me to then kind of have a response. And I thought, oh, crumbs, imagine I'm 12. And I can, I can I do that. Brilliant. That is a brilliant story because that's exactly what happens. And there's research on this. We know that body dysmorphia and all kinds of, you know, that we're young girls are internalizing these images and then looking at their, you know, these airbrushed images online that mm. are so, so, so perfect. They're a face tuned, I think is the word. And then mm. they look in the mirror and they think they're ugly and they're not. They're not, they're beautiful. They're, they, some of them are going through an awkward phase because they're in middle school, but they're going to emerge as beautiful women. But they think because they don't look like an avatar, you know, or this airbrushed um, star they follow on Instagram, they think they start to think they're ugly. And it's so funny when I talk to women, they understand this immediately, what social media does to young girls. But when I talk to men and, and men interview me, they, they don't understand it in the same way because men have never been as critical of their bodies as women are. Hmm. I think it's coming though, for this particular generation. So I have three boys, they're 11, 
at 17 and 18 and then my daughter's 13 and I there's there's something happening it doesn't happen to every boy but there is more of this sort of muscle stuff coming so you have to be and I think in in the gay male community I've talked to gay men who've said you know effeminate gay men are just not valued anymore uh, so even even in those sort of communities there's this like masculinity coming but it's not um it's not the same as as girls and and we know during adolescence that you're both the most embarrassed and sensitive you're ever going to be so it's not the time to be able to look at yourself in the mirror and it's constant you know i think about you know my my kids go to school and and to promote, I guess, to keep the parents involved because parents like to be in every classroom all the time. They were Instagramming photos of the kids in classrooms for the school. And it was, you know, like pictures of, oh, here's the second graders learning math and whatnot. And I complained to the school because I said, you know, when an, a girl in sixth grade is trying to learn math or whatever, you're gonna make her think about how she looks because yeah, you're yeah. taking pictures and you're posting them on a public site that everyone can access. So I, I use that example of that story because we're all participating, even the schools, in constantly making these girls think about their appearance. Yeah, well, I, I wonder if digital cameras are to blame, to be honest, because when my son went to a Montessori 14, 15 years ago, they would produce sort of books and, and show photographs of your kids doing the specific work. And I just, I'm pretty sure that didn't happen when I was at school. The teachers didn't need to say, I'm doing a great job, here's a photograph to prove it. And these were exceptional teachers. And we get it all the time now where we have to have updates all the time, including photos. It's really peculiar. I, I trust you to teach my kids unless you prove that you can't be trusted. That's exactly right. It's so different. I get calls and updates for everything. And also from, you know, my kids' schools, I'm also required, that I'm expected to produce updates. So, you know, make sure your kids are prepared. You know, I just, I, you know, I want to say it as, at a certain point, this is very nice, but I'm sending them to school. You handle it. Like, whatever, <laughs> you know, but that's not the contemporary, you know, culture that we're living in. They think that I want moment to moment pictures of my kids doing their work in school. And, and I think that parents complain if they don't get that. But you see it's why we're so not giving weird. our teen, I know, I know, but we're not giving our teenagers a space to grow up. And that's why mm. these girls are so desperate for it. They have no space. Their parents can literally see pictures of the parties they went to. Imagine that, you know, it's the so parents awful. follow them online. It's awful, right? They don't have a private moment with their girlfriends that the parents then don't review on Instagram. Yeah, I mean, I do say to my children, if you put it online, I can see it. So just just live your life without putting it online. I mean, they they don't so much because I will, I, I'll tell them they'll look. And it's not because I really want to see or I don't trust them, but... I just say, don't put anything online you wouldn't want me to see because that's your future employer or that's all of your friends or the entire school. And if you put something out there, you know, don't even join a text conversation where people are being mean because your bit can be grabbed and used against you at any point. Never write anything down. If you're going to be unkind, 
do it do it verbally with no witnesses <laughs> but we're but that i think that has more to do with the stifling of speech than almost anything else because what you just said is right you're telling your child and i tell my kids the same thing anything you put online can be used against you at any moment no matter the fact you know it doesn't matter that you're 13 your future employer will see that that's a tremendous amount of pressure to put on a 13 year old mm -hmm. now mm -hmm. i i give my kids the same talk but but you realize why they're all trying to, this generation is rushing to, you know, adopt the party line. Because if they don't have the right opinions on everything, their future employer could find out. It's so frightening, the whole, all of it. I wonder whether we, we were wrong ever to allow under 18s or 21s um, on, on any of this. I mean, we mess, we mess up enough as adults, but kids on social media, I can't really see the upside. I, I agree. I mean, I talked to a young woman, Benji, who is wonderful. She was a desister. So she trans identified for a while and, and then desisted. And one of the things she told me was that, you know, when she made an announcement, and this was a revelation to me, when she made an announcement at 13, she was very lonely. She was very awkward in adolescence. And she made an announcement, she decided to try out a trans identity online to sort of create this online identity because she had sort of been captivated by YouTube videos of these transgender influencers and whatnot. And when she announced she was transgender online, all of a sudden she got a rush of love, an outpouring of love from all these adults who were congratulating her and supporting her and telling her how brave she was. And then of course, soon after that, they started you know, making requests of her. And um, she, you know, she was 13. She wasn't ready for sexual requests from adults, but, but effectively that's what she had opened herself up to without meaning to, because that's what so social media allows and facilitates. Mm. Well, right now, I think Reddit closed down the gender, gender critical subreddit. I didn't post on there, but, but uh, a lot of gender critical women did, and they suddenly just took it all down. So that whole community uh, wasn't allowed to post anymore. But at the same time, they have like something called a trans orphan um, subreddit where newly identifying teens can go onto a subreddit and then an adult will kind of adopt them like a trans adult will adopt a trans child and they will take them into private chat rooms. And it's from, yeah. sorry, and from there, well, who knows? You know, it, you can't put the word trans and it means anything other than an adult takes a vulnerable teenager into a private place to talk. Right. So it's, it's like you read it, which has some of the most deeply misogynistic groups that it allows, um, bans a, gr a group of women. This is such a, honestly, such a scandal. Banned a group of women from talking openly about how they feel about sex and gender and feminism and whatnot. That, that got shut down. Mm -hmm. It's, it's really astonishing. And there is this grooming. I mean, parents who say to me, you know, why can't you make, um, you know, because one of the things I oppose in the book is I say, teens should not be making, your, your young teenager should not be making sexual orientation or gender identity or any kind of announcements online. And they say to me, well, you know, what's, what's the big deal? And imagine you put your, your 14 year old, uh, let's take a heterosexual example because it's not, it's not, it doesn't apply only to one or the other sexuality or gender identity. Say you let your daughter announce online, I'm boy crazy. Imagine what kinds of adults will reach out to her. 
Mm. And it's the same. It's no, it's the same for if she announces she's gay or, or a trans boy, she's making an announcement that adults who take, who can take advantage can see. Mm. Well, the NSPCC, so we had a scandal uh, back last year where Munro Bergdorf, who does sort of uh, glamour, shall we say, to avoid um, any legal action, glamour type photo shoots for Playboy, um, amongst others. And he identifies as a, as a trans woman. Um, and he was appointed as some sort of child LGBT for the NSPCC, which is a, against child cruelty. That's its, that's its purpose as a charity. He was appointed and lots of people like that. He doesn't seem, you know, he isn't a parent, has never been involved with children or children's charities. Just the fact that he's trans, it does not make him qualified for this position. And then people look behind the scenes as to how he got this position. And um, a guy called James Makings, who worked at the NSPCC, had, had hired him, had advised to hire him. And then James Makings, whilst he was at work at the NSPCC, was in the toilets doing, wearing certain clothes, uh, doing certain things that would not be conducive to any place of employment. And that became a bit of a scandal. But then you sort of unraveled it and you just thought, there's something really sinister going on with all sorts of safeguarding that is completely ignored as soon as you prefix it with LGBT and certainly T. Um, that's exact. Yeah, that that's right. I mean, you know, I, I you know, people are afraid to push back when their daughters announce they're pansexual or asexual at thirteen. It's like a lot of parents think, "Oh my gosh, I support LGBTQ rights, therefore I can't say to her, you're thirteen. But of course, you know, the sexualization of children. You wouldn't take your thirteen-year-old daughter to a mixer with adult men, <laughs> with thirty-year-old men right? Yeah. But you would somehow celebrate her new sexuality online or let her celebrate it online where grown men and all kinds of people can reach out to her um, and have private conversations. Mm. That's, not, that's not a healthy environment. And it is political correctness, meaning the, uh, the fear of ever putting, you know, separating our children from the sexualization, you know, because of we don't want to seem as transphobic, homophobic, whatever phobic. Um, we're not, we're not keeping our, our girls safe. Mm. Well, it's now homophobic. If you say that you don't particularly like men in, in rubber dog costumes, um, walking along in a pride parade or a man dressed as a two-year-old, uh, little girl, you're, you're all of a sudden transphobic and homophobic. If you say, well, I don't think that should be in the street, you know, have it in a club. Yes, that's right. And I think, you know, Douglas Murray has obviously done wonderful work on, on this. And I, I think that, that that's right. We are so afraid. And I think what we're afraid of is the shaming that occurs online. I, I think that is what's crept in. We are so afraid that in, in, you know, expressing a very normal opinion, like adults shouldn't be going around with, with leashes, you know, you know, in public uh, and, uh, a very sort of obvious commonsensical view that that's not an appropriate thing to be parading around. Um, and it's certainly not an appropriate thing to be exposing children to mm. that kind of view. You know, we're all entitled to have rules for our kids. 
and some of them may not be good policy for the society, but we're allowed to have them for our kids. But today, because they're so easily extracted and exposed online and publicized, we're afraid to even have them in the privacy of our own homes. Mm. So going back to the girls then and the harms of testosterone, because I think I think uh, personally, uh, I, and I've talked to, I hosted Marcus Evans at the House of Lords. He talked for us um, and I, I'm very friendly with him and his wife. Uh, and Susan Evans, I interviewed, and she sort of said, even social transition means that you get to miss a part of your life as your authentic self, whilst authentic self has, has ceased to mean <laughs> genuinely who you are. And it's something something badly used these days um so these girls socially transition or whatever they do and then they're on testosterone so i think it'd be good if you could explain what testosterone does to those girls testosterone is really it's a really insidious thing and i'll tell you why because it has some good effects too it is something of a cure for female puberty because it alleviates, these girls are very anxious and it alleviates anxiety. It gives, it gives um, a, a certain euphoria, it delivers a euphoria and a sense of power and, and it redistributes fat and it, can, and, it, and it slows or stops your period. So these girls feel great. They, their anxiety is lessened. They, they are bolder socially. And, and they don't have those, you know, female problem areas, so-called, right? The, the problem, of course, it comes with all these bad things too. Mm. Um, you know, like it leads to infertility, but it, you know, creates body hair, it, it alters private anatomy. Um, and, and, you know, lots of that stuff is permanent. Um, and the problem is because of the euphoria and because of it, it does suppress anxiety, these girls who go on it become evangelists for it. They can't wait to tell their friends that they have never felt as good as, they, as when they started testosterone. So it really is, it, it's very insidious um, and, and it really does captivate these girls. So they've basically unlocked the secret to mediocre men who feel entitled and powerful. <laughs> That is a way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> it's so scandalous. I, I've heard of, um, I've heard of the uh, like heart failure being suppressed. That sometimes these girls are actually suffering, you know, almost fatal, if not fatal, heart attacks. Um, That's right. I and didn't even get into the cardiovascular effects. You're absolutely right. We don't really know what giving a woman ten to forty times her normal testosterone levels would do over the course of a lifetime. But we do know that it will, it, that it seems to elevate cardiovascular risk, a lot, cardiac risk a lot. Um, and, 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 and maybe the greatest risk of all in a sense, and it, it leads to, you know, heightens rate, you know, risk of endometrial cancer. They often rec recommend a prophylactic hysterectomy after you've been on it for five years. But the, maybe the biggest risk of, of all is that we have no idea what's going to happen when this is done to the, all these girls' bodies for so many decades. Yeah. Well, there was new research in the United Kingdom uh, about Alzheimer's and you have an increased risk of Alzheimer's um, if you have a hysterectomy and we're giving hysterectomies to girls in their early twenties, I can't imagine. I mean, it's, it's common sense, right? That whether you're a God fearing or whether you're like me and an atheist, 
whoever decided that this human body would work the way it did, they took a lot of time and effort. Evolution did it over a millennia. And we got to this point where we separated as two sexes a really long time ago. And to think that we can come and mess with that in such a short space of time, if at all, is absolutely bonkers. I, I don't understand how anybody can't, uh, can't sort of see it unless they just willfully give up their common sense to the medics. That's exactly right. You know, I interviewed, that's, it's a fantastic point. And I think part of it has to do with our anatomical ignorance. So I t interviewed a lot of detransitioners and desisters in the book, people who were transitioned and then went back on it and regretted it. And one is a wonderful man who goes by Jade. And he spoke to me about how, and I think his term was, I, you know, the way the doctors had portrayed these various surgeries to him, he thought of himself almost as a robot where you could just remove various parts and everything would be okay. And he came to understand after going through, you know, I think it was orchiectomy, which is, you know, removal of the testes, that that, that wasn't the case at all. And in fact, our endocrine system is incredibly complex. And now he was stuck with all these physiological um you know, challenges because his natural body and his natural systems have been dramatically interrupted. And, and that's right. You, we're not just a bunch of parts, you know, <laughs> sewn together. We, we mm. were all interconnected with a certain design for a reason. And, you know, that doesn't mean I, I'm not opposed to adults. I mean, personally, I'm not opposed to adults who've suffered gender dysphoria and have, you know, have come to this making you know choices about their bodies. It, you know, gender transition is not something I'm opposed of, uh, sorry, opposed to. But the idea that a teenage girl in the midst of a mental health crisis can say, based on her own self-diagnosis with no oversight, I know I need my breasts removed, and that a doctor will do it without any medical indication that she needs it or that she will be helped by it is really appalling. How did you get through it then, listening to all these stories? Were you just so, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do something that's going to help these kids that you could, did you, did you um, have some space of your own where you would just try and unload some of this? So, yes. I mean, I think the parents' stories um, were sometimes the hardest to, to hear because I, I hardly talk to a parent who doesn't end up sobbing on the phone. It's very, very common. They feel very alone. They have no one else to talk to. Um, and, and that's just a common experience. I mean, I, you know, of a lot, of, I, I, talking to detransitioners was, was also something that was hard to listen to as well, but at least they had, they, they have the gift of clarity. Whereas that because they realized that they made a mistake and they're open about it now. And, and, and so they have that going for them. Um, and the adults are in the midst of this and sorry, the parents are in the midst of this and they don't know the, the end. And it's heartbreaking. I mean, I don't listen to a parent's story without thinking that could have been me. I mean, you know, these parents had no way of knowing this is an epidemic that, and they all blame themselves. Every one of them blames themselves. I should have seen this. I should have checked what she was looking at online. I should have visited her instead of visiting her every two months in college. I should have visited her every week. I mean, these parents were doing everything they could. Yeah, I think that it's, it's the entire system, isn't it? It's the lies that have perforated through every place that you expect 
to be able to turn to for some really moral, honest, factual advice that would say, hey, let's, have a, let's talk to your daughter. Let's find out what's underneath this. Let's find out where this came from. Let's help your daughter. You know, maybe, I mean, I don't have this opinion, but I know some people think that maybe sometimes people are genuinely trans, whatever that means. Um, but even so, surely that would take a good three or four years of really intense therapy to ensure that that is genuinely going to help that child to, to transition when they become an adult. So that's one thing. When I talk to transgender adults, um, who are so many of them are so wonderful. And one of the things they tell me is that gender transition is hard. It's not easy. It's not easy to go through life, you know, holding yourself out as the opposite sex. And so they were really benefited by mental health, you know, oversight. And they don't regard the doctors who help them as gatekeepers. But today, any therapist who says, hold on to a teenage girl, I, I'm not sure your self-diagnosis is correct. You seem to have a lot of other mental health issues we should deal with. That, that's not allowed. It's frowned upon. And in some cases, they risk loses, losing their license. Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I think, in fact, I don't even think if an adult's got gender dysphoria, they, they, uh, they can choose. I think if you want to do something to your body that will profoundly alter it, um, whilst I may think that, that there are other routes to happiness, if you want to do that and you're a fully functioning adult, maybe 25 plus, then you're welcome to do that. It's your body. Um, and I'm welcome not to want you to come into my space if it's female only. But, you know, it's, that's, that's the least of it. I can lose my rights to female only space. But those girls, they are never going to get their bodies back to the way that they should be once they've entered those transitions. That, that's right. And I think that girls, and maybe children more broadly, but I think girls have realized that we've stopped protecting them as a society. We don't, we don't protect girls anymore. We don't say, you know, hold on, this, I, this isn't about political correctness. A man's body shouldn't be in a, a, um, you know, a, a restroom with, with young girls. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's, they've noticed that. And so they're not really looking forward to becoming women because it, womanhood, womanhood means to be a victim to them. It means to be, have this, you know, Un, very unpopular place in society. Mm. I used to see a little girl who identified as a boy. Um, her parents had gone through a tricky divorce. There were all sorts of things that you could see from, out, from an outsider as to why this may have happened. And I used to think, imagine being her. So some people she meets already know that she used to be a girl, even if they, they call her a boy. And then there's new people. Are they going to know? Are they going to look at her for just that little bit too long where she thinks, are they looking to see if I'm a boy or a girl? And that sort of level of anxiety, I just can't imagine. It's bad enough if you've got a slightly loose bra strap and you think it's going to slip, right? As a teenage girl, you think someone's going to see through your shirt that you're wearing a bra. I can't imagine what it must be like wearing a costume of the opposite sex, hoping that nobody finds you out all day long, every day, at the minute you leave your house. That's right. And, and, and I think you're right. You know, the big problem is all the lies around this. So it's not, it's not cruel or transphobic 
to point out, as many transgender adults I've talked to will say, that you know, presenting as the opposite sex is hard, and you know, we we need to make sure that the medical care is 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 good. That um, you know, that the the mental health care is there to support them. Today, that's all considered transphobic. So, if you're at a, a doctor at a medical conference and you want to talk about the risks of testosterone or the risks of puberty blockers, you're considered a transphobe, and that's doctors. That's doctors. Imagine what parents feel when they just want to say, hold on, I don't think my daughter's transgender. She's just going through a lot. She's 14. So you've talked to lots of parents who talk about their regret. And I think both you and I um, are on the same page that we don't remotely blame the parents. I mean, I I think sometimes when the children are like four, five, six, I I question um, the parents, but we don't have the same, we don't have the same assault. As, as you do in the States. So there's still, most people still feel capable of saying, I don't think children should transition in this country. I don't think it's so safe in America. Um, you know, or people will say that they think a child has a right to a mother when a man, when a, a woman who's transitioned gives birth and then wants to put man on the birth certificate, father and no mother. So I think we have, we, we still are holding on to some of that. But with the parents um, very much not to blame, what can they do? How can, is there anything they can do? There's a lot they can do. And that's really important. Number one, get your kid off social media. Get them off social media. It's poison for them. It makes them, it increases suicidality, it increases chances of cutting, all, it increases the tutoring that they get from teenagers who wanna show them how to be an anorexic, how to cut, how to engage in self-harm. This is poison, get them off it. Um, another thing they can do is oppose gender ideology in your school. Um, there is no reason to go along with it. I under, we, we absolutely must show compassion for all children, including transgender children in the school system. Of course, bullying should never be tolerated, um, but you don't need to indoctrinate an entire population in gender confusion in order to achieve that. Yeah. Um, and another thing I would say is, what you started out by saying is, parents really need to set limits. That's what they're there for. They're not there to just agree and be friends with their daughters. They're actually there to push back. Even if the daughter goes crazy, I mean, in other words, even if the daughter gets so angry with them, that's how it's supposed to go. So the daughter may not like the limits, but at least she'll feel that there's a guardrail in her life. And the more parents give in to things that they do not believe are good for her mental health or her physical health, the more she's going to push harder and harder for an area of rebellion. Yeah, it's um, it's so, I just don't know how I would deal with if one of my kids said it. I think I'd just, I think I'd just straight away say, don't be so ridiculous. Of course you're not. Um, and there's nothing you can do about it. You know, that's it. But I've heard stories of, of parents over here where <laughs> one woman her, her son wanted two towels when he came out of the bath. So he wanted one for his hair, like his mum did. And she'd said no. And the next night he said, I'm a woman. Before he went in the bath, he said, he said I, I'm a girl. I'm a girl. And she said, no, you're not. He said, I really am a girl. And she couldn't add up. And then she went to bed and thought about it all night and searched her soul. And 
kind of took him on the, the path of pretending he's a girl. But I just thought, he just wanted two towels. You know, that's all he wanted. He just wanted two towels. That's right. And, and I, I see this, you know, I see this with teenage girls um, when they make a sexual orientation claim about themselves or, sec or gender identity claim. Parents today, because of their op open, you know, their support of LGBTQ rights generally, will feel afraid to point out to the girl that she's only 13 and she's had no romantic experience <laughs> and they don't, they can just ignore it or, mm. you know, handle it however they want, but they don't have to immediately embrace it because yeah. she's 13 years old. Well, my daughter, I think lots of, when she started secondary school, which starts at 11, um, lots of words that girls were using that we just didn't use uh, bisexual pansexual lesbian obviously you can't come out as heterosexual because that's just right. so old-fashioned right. uh, but also anxious stressed distressed um deep anxiety and all of these sort of words related to mental health that i don't think are true or helpful i'm not saying that children aren't having a hard time i just think at 11 um, it's unlikely that you're genuinely depressed. Uh, but I think we're feeding that. I think we're so worried about men. On one hand, there's a lot of mental health crisis in this country and in America. On the other, we talk to kids about it all the time. And I wonder if Brilliant, we're just yeah. imagining it or no, bringing it. You're absolutely it. right. You're absolutely right. I, I talk about this in the book. So you know, our generation, so I'm, I'm also, I'm a little, I'm just a couple of years younger than you. I'm 42 and we are part of Gen X and Gen X's improvement on our parents was that we were the therapy generation in a certain sense. We believe in therapy and it turns out we're introducing our kids to therapy at a very young age. And they have been taught to think of all of the problems they feel and go through in mental health terms. So if mm -hmm. you talk to adolescents today, they will say, I had, I, I went to the mall and I didn't know, or I went not to the mall, but I went to do, you know, interact with someone and I had a panic attack or they'll say, oh, that's my social anxiety. They, they speak in the terms of mental health diagnosis. And one of the things that our, you know, our love of therapy has done to them is that they're always looking into, in themselves for something that's wrong with them. They're always hunting for a diagnosis. So they can never sort of just shrug off a period of shyness or awkwardness or mm -hmm. everything that goes hand in hand with adolescence. It always in their minds comes with a diagnosis. And it does have the habit of convincing them that there must be something really wrong with them. Mm. We're just too quick to give. I'd just like to stop giving everything a name all the time. You know, uh, butterflies in your stomach was good enough. It didn't need to be sort of deep anxiety. But also I think this generation, or maybe it's just my, my own kids. Um, I was always, if, if I had a puncture in my tire, I could fix it, thanks very much. I didn't need my dad to come and do it for me. Um, there was, I was very much, I can do, I will do, I can do it for myself. And I don't know what's happened, but there's a lot of kids that just don't feel like they can do stuff for themselves. I don't know whether it's because they can't make a mistake. So I think a lot of things are, are to blame and you're absolutely right. They have a lot less sense of agency than they ever did before. Um, they don't get their driver's license, you know, as soon as they could, you know, for instance, they don't, they're less likely to have jobs and whatnot. Um, and they don't feel that they can do for themselves. 
And the one thing that they want to do, you know, when you're in this position where you don't feel powerful, what you really want more than anything in life is a shield. So they go off to college because they can't do for themselves. What they want to do is hide in an LGBTQ shield. And the one that they can choose for themselves is trans because they can't choose anything else. They can't choose their sexuality. They can't choose their race. Um, and I do think that a lot of their problems come from not feeling they can really do for themselves. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. My, one of my sons finished college really early and, uh, just before COVID actually. And I said to him, you need to get a job. Um, and he's 18 and he said, and he's, he's got another year of college and then he might go to uni. And I, he said, um, he said, oh, I'm all right. And I said, if you don't have a purpose to your day where I said, and you go to spend time with adults who will mentor you, who, and he's a lovely, he's such a lovely kid. And I said, don't you want people to tell you that you're nice and that you're great? And that you've done something well. And if you don't do that, if you don't have a sense of purpose, you won't be happy. Your long-term happiness won't happen because you don't feel that you ever achieve anything. And I just think right across the board, I think we're not allowing kids to achieve anything. That's right. And so the one thing that they can achieve is, is this new sexual orientation or gender identity announcement. They make this announcement, they feel like they have done something. But of course, they didn't develop relationships. They didn't discover their sexuality. They didn't discover anything about themselves. They just went online. But that's, that's the world in which they're making a difference is the social, mm -hmm. you know, social media. That's where they think they're making a difference mm -hmm. um, because they're not in a job and because they do sit around online rather than spending time with each other. I mean, we used to, you know, in our generation, we spent so much more time with each other and so many of our projects involved making friends or doing work and so, and so forth. Mm -hmm. and, and today they're online. So, so what, is, what are their options? Well, their options are to share photos and, and, and their ground for rebellion and, and for progress is, is, a, is, the, is internal, it's to themselves. So they, you know, the next step is hormones or the next step yeah. is top surgery. That's where they're making a difference in the world. It's always self-focused. Yeah. Well, one of my friend's daughters liked a boy. I think they were both 17. She liked a boy. He liked her. They took three months of texting each other until they actually met in real life as a date. And I just said, don't you think that's bonkers? She said, that's how it works. I was like, but how are you going to get how do you get through the stages? And then what happens is they actually have a full sexual relationship, not very long in the relationship. So there's, they've talked for too long and then they're straight into sort of the, the most, you know, dangerously uh, intimate relationship. Yes. And the texting relationship isn't, isn't a real relationship, of course, although that is the mode that they use today because you don't see each other's faces. You don't, you know, everything's communicated in these tiny little, you know, bits of language. So you're not, you're not pushed. I mean, we want to save our children from so much heartache, but heartache is what grows us up, yeah. right? I mean, at the time I would have done anything to get out of it, but the problem is today's parents are actually inserting themselves and blocking their kids from ever experiencing heartache of any sort. 
they will talk to the teachers, they will interfere in, in ch ch you know, children's relationships with each other. They never let them work it out. And working it out is how you figure out what your limits are and how you should behave and how to make friends and how to build relationships and who you mm. are. You need to break a little bit to know how to rebuild. Right, exactly. So um, I realize I've had you for a really long time. <laughs> no so um, were you surprised by the backlash and um, what happened with Amazon not promoting your work? Oh, um, a, a little bit. I mean, you know, I, Amazon has blocked ads for my book. That's fine. I mean, it, what that means is if you enter search terms for the book, you're, you're, it's much harder to get. Um, you know, there are all kinds of games played with the book online, but more than anything, you know, when you write about someone else's experience, and this wasn't about my own, I really wrote about what the experience of, of these teenage girls was and of their parents. Um, you, as a journalist, you always worry that someone will say you, you got, that I got it wrong because I'm writing about someone else's experience. It wasn't autobiographical. But what I've been most gratified by is that so many parents have reached out to say, no, you, that's exactly the experience that I had. And, and that's, that's what I was trying to do was really capture what they were up against. So uh, I've been very, very lucky in that way and very pleased by that. They must be absolutely just blown away, relieved to read your book. A lot of them seem to be because sometimes they didn't even know this was a, a phenomenon across the West or even across America. Sometimes they thought it was just their daughter. Gosh, I just can't imagine facing something so monumental and having no one to turn to. And it's your kid. It's not you. I could, you know, I could probably deal with something if it was me, but it's your child. And I just think it's a scandal that politicians aren't talking about it. Uh, more. I know some of the Republicans are, are sort of talking about it, but it should be an issue that nobody avoids because it's so, it's such a devastating impact on those young women. I agree. Not enough people are talking about this. I mean, really, I don't hear politicians talking about this. They don't, sometimes I think they don't know how much our culture has encouraged young girls who are feeling imperfectly feminine or just awkward in their bodies, how much our culture and society and medical professions are encouraging them to, to, to head for the exit, medically speaking, and actually undergo transition. Well, maybe we could encourage some Americans to actually write to their governors and senators and representatives to let them know, uh, especially if they're Democrats, because I, it, I don't know American politics that well, but I would have thought that the people standing up for women and children would have been the Democrats, like from an outsider perspective. And, and, and actually it's not. And then people castigate the Republicans as if they're some sort of alt-right uh, nasty people. Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the problems with this debate is that the people willing to stand up for women and girls are Republicans and many of them religious. And so everyone just assumes that this is a religious issue. And I kept politics out of the book. I kept religion out of the book. This is not a religious issue. It shouldn't even be a political issue. This is an issue we should all agree on. And that's that our teenage girls are in crisis. And yeah. they're being encouraged to do things to their bodies that is probably not going to help them at all. Well, on that note, I shall thank you very much for joining me this evening. I've uh, an absolute delight. And I'm pretty sure your book is going to go 
crazy here. So maybe we'll have to bring you over. Surely the UK will, some TV channel will, um, will pick it up and, and, and promote it as much as humanly possible. But thank you very much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Please don't forget to like, share and subscribe. And Abigail's book is released in the UK on the 23rd of July.